The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Thursday, June 14th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Seth Grossman, a 69-year-old lawyer, is the Republican nominee for an open New Jersey congressional seat. It would be a Democratic pickup. The retiring Representative Frank Lobiondo is a Republican. But can Grossman, a surprise winner of the primary, close the deal? Well, he ran into a wee bit of trouble when local media unearthed a tape of him saying at a candidate's forum in April that diversity was a bunch of crap. He was on radio station WHYY today to expound upon that. Uh, That that was an an ambush question. But what interviewer Dave Davies just asked was not an ambush question. You knew it was coming because this statement was in all the papers. And that's why you agreed to be interviewed about it. And having heard it, you still said yes. You had two months to think about it. The candidate continued. What do you mean by diversity? Um, A lot of different, glorious, multifaceted ways to answer a question head-slappingly wrong. Uh, Diversity, of course I love diversity. Uh, I like to go to Chinese restaurants, Italian restaurants, uh, Mexican restaurants, Vietnamese. And to further prove my commitment to diversity, even within those textbook examples of diversity, I'd like you to know when I'm in a Mexican restaurant, I sometimes even order the combination plate. The non-discrimination is a food court ideologue continued. But now diversity has taken on a new political meaning, meaning that if you have an organization, if you have a school, unless you have the proper balance of this racial group, this ethnic group, this sexual preference, it's bad. And that diversity for the sake of diversity is a virtue. And I think that's ridiculous. I didn't want to use the word bunch of crap, but it is a bunch of crap. I'm thinking maybe he doesn't mind using it that much. And listen, I'm fine with saying crap. It's just thinking like crap that bothers me. And an indication of the quality of his thought happened after the host talked about the history of slavery and discrimination and redlining, which went on until recently. The candidate countered by bragging about the achievements of African-Americans in Atlantic City. Blacks achieved equality, uh, not only more than equality, political power, economic success. Okay, but you wouldn't argue that that blacks had full equal opportunity in housing and employment even in the North throughout the 20th century, would you? I mean, what, what about the redlining and discrimination and well, I mean, there, the armed there, forces there, weren't even there, integrated There, there, until there the we go to, to the red, redlining again. I don't think he knows what redlining means. You had many, I guess, people, applicants, who were rejected for loans because they couldn't pay them back. And then, then the government said, oh, no, you got to give them loans anyway. And what do we get? We got the housing boom, the housing bubble, and the economic collapse of 2007, 2008. No, he definitely doesn't know what redlining means. The candidate then underlined his objection to diversity by telling this story of a candidate's event. There was actually one black guy there who heard me make that, those remarks. And at the end of the debate, he signed up to be a volunteer in my campaign. So the only black guy there was the one who was not only not offended, but he, uh, you know, and most of the African-Americans I, I speak to about this say that diversity and affirmative action is another word for excuse. Excuse for failure, excuse for not getting training, excuse for no discipline. And, and that is what is killing the African-American community, the idea that you can succeed. And this is why we don't need diversity. Because the one black guy, the one black guy who showed up at a Seth Grossman event, is pro-Seth Grossman. Got it. On the show today, I spiel about the nasty things celebrities say and their supposedly enormous power to get people to vote stupidly. 
But first, children separated from adults a tent city for teenagers seeking asylum, and no plan to end any of this anytime soon. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In early April, the Department of Justice announced that any immigrant referred for illegal entry by the Department of Homeland Security would be prosecuted. According to Border Patrol stats, 9,485 migrants were apprehended in family units in May 2018. We have stats from a two-week period in May, and it shows that 658 children were split from adults during the prosecution process. Pramila Jayapal, a member of Congress from Washington State, was on the Strangers Blabbermouth podcast talking about going to one of these facilities and meeting with mothers who had their kids taken from them. Not a one of them was allowed to say goodbye to their children. They literally were in the same room and then they were told either that they had to go see the judge or that they had to go get a photograph taken. They were taken out of the room and then brought back to a different room or brought back to the room where the child was no longer there. In some cases, they could hear the children screaming for their mothers. They could hear them screaming for them and they couldn't do anything about it. Franco Ordonez has been reporting on these facilities and this plan for the great McClatchy newspaper group. (laughs) Hello, Franco. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Tell me about what is and has been U.S. policy regarding minor children who come across the border. Sure thing. So, Before the Trump administration, the Obama administration, President Barack Obama, some may be surprised to hear, was pretty darn tough on the border and immigration front. He locked up parents and children. He detained mothers and children at the border. He built uh, these type of facilities 
in military areas. He housed sheltered, unaccompanied minors on military facilities. He sent uh, Border Patrol to the border. Um, He did a lot of the same things that Donald Trump is doing right now. The one difference, and it is a big key difference, is that the Obama administration did not separate children at the border. So what has happened is because they are now separating children from their parents and prosecuting their parents, the facilities, the child shelters that are used to house these kids are filling up rapidly. They're now about 95 percent full. There's 11,200 kids who are now being held without their parents. It's a massive issue. They're desperate for detention space. So what's happening now is they're starting to consider building these tent cities. Is the separation of children from parents, is that the policy or is that the result of some other policy? The policy is the zero tolerance policy. So what Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, said, if you come to the United States illegally, we are going to prosecute you no matter what. If you come to the border and you come with your family, we are going to prosecute you. If you come to the border with your children, underage children, little kids, we will prosecute you. So what that means is we are going to take your kid away so that we can put you in detention and put you through the courts. Right. So the prosecution is the policy. What used to be the policy? People would come across the border and what would happen to them? When parents would come over from the ch- with the children, they would go and they would go to the border and they would ask for asylum and they would be brought in and sometimes they would be put in a family detention center where they'd be kept with the kids in these kind of jail-like facilities. But... After a certain amount of time, they were released into uh, the United States with a court hearing. You know, it could be a year, it could be two years, three years later. They were supposed to appear in court to have their asylum hearing. But what's happening now is the parents are being separated from the children and the parents are being held in detention uh, so that they can stay there until they can be prosecuted. What happens is the children are also kind of in this limbo land. Some are certainly being placed with family, with sponsors, um, but otherwise they're also going in these facilities. The old uh, policy of a court date at a later date, when some of these people, many of these people, maybe you have the statistics about how many didn't show up, that was derided as catch and release by the people who are opposed to that, by the people who voted for Donald Trump and put in these policies. So these policies, with the consequence of the uh, children being separated from parents, are in fact exactly what uh, Trump promised to stop what he called catch and release. Yeah, I mean, there's no real catch and release policy. Basically, there are laws that say you cannot just hold people indefinitely until their court dates. I mean, there are laws. Children can only be held between 5 to 20 days unless there is a concern of a flight risk. Parents, there are Supreme Court decisions uh, that adults can only be held for six months unless they are considered a flight risk. And what you know, what the Trump administration is obviously arguing is that these these people are flight risks uh, and they're really hammering down to kind of try to take control so that they can deport these people as soon as possible. But there are limitations to this and they're facing those. And that's why you're seeing Trump getting more and more frustrated as the numbers go up and there are limitations to what he can do. And I, I 
just also want to be clear, you have been reporting on this uh, Fort Bliss facility, and that is the that is a facility for unaccompanied minors, or is that a facility for kids who are with their parents? So that's a fac- that will be or likely be a facility for unaccompanied minors. So it would be with the kids who are not with their parents. Okay. So unaccompanied minors generally are teenagers. I mean, a 17-year-old could be an unaccompanied minor, you know, old enough to make the journey by himself or herself. But then you have the facilities uh, with kids who are with their parents. And sometimes from your reporting and others, it seems that 10-year-olds are being put in you know, cages with 17-year-olds. Is that is that what's going on? I don't know about that being like a potential for Fort Bliss, but certainly that's the reporting that's happening in other child shelters in Texas. There are large concerns about younger kids being housed in these massive facilities, warehouse-type facilities, where there's not enough supervision, uh, and there's a big concern for how these kids are treated. It was just this month that the state of Texas issued a report that found more than 150 violations at these child shelter uh, facilities, including sexual assault allegations, which is very concerning. What happens to the kids? You know, they try to, you know, put as many, as much supervision as they can, but the reality is you have like these big groups of, of kids who who have, you know, some autonomy there. You know, you can imagine like, you know, they can't supervise everyone. Not all the staff is properly qualified. They're not all social workers. Oftentimes they're hired guns. Where will these kids go? Ideally, they go with a family member eventually. At this point, though, I mean, you remember just a couple of weeks ago, there were reports that the United States, that the Trump administration had lost track of more than 1,400 children who had been placed with sponsors. They just could not reach them. They could not identify exactly where they were located. The Trump administration took a great deal of heat by this. And what they did was they promised to do higher vetting, stronger vetting of the parents and the sponsors who come forward to try to take custody of these kids. And what that means, according to advocates and experts that I've spoken with, is that more kids are going to be put in detention and they're going to be put in detention longer. So Yes, I mean, yes. This, when we heard heard they lost track and then perhaps we heard the Trump administration vowed to correct that, that solution might be worse than the problem, just if you have sympathies for children. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about 1,400 kids, and that was just, let's be clear, that was only over a three-month period of time of calls. So there's potentially hundreds more, if not thousands more, a year who are likely they're losing track of. What happens to the parents, though, who don't get asylum? The parents go back and the kids stay? The scenarios run the gamut. Parents will be deported. Uh, the children will stay with family members. Sometimes the, the children will go back with the parent. Oftentimes it depends on the age of the kids. If it's a 16 or 17-year-old, sometimes the parent will feel a little bit more comfortable uh, leaving the child here for a couple years and maybe hope that once they turn 18, they may be able to help bring other family members there. A lot of it depends. A lot of it depends on what the status of the children is. Are they in the country legally or not? And if they came over with the parent, then they're not legally. So they're going to face their own issues.
So there are there is a class of immigrants who uh, tries to come into our country illegally, just sneak in, not declare himself or herself. But there's another class, and I think this is who we're talking about, asylum seekers. They declare I'm here for asylum. Is it legal to subject them to prosecution? Is it actually legal under international law to treat asylum seekers like this? I mean, it kind of depends on what you mean by treat in that sense. I mean, certainly many of these new wave of uh, migrants who are coming here are not necessarily from Mexico, but they're from Central America, El Salvador and Honduras, which are two of the most violent nations in the world right now. So what they get is when they get here, they have the right to interviews to prove that they have a credible fear of returning. Now, the Trump administration has taken another tact. They feel those protections that are approved by law are they see many of those actually as loopholes. They say it's too easily to commit quote unquote asylum fraud, uh, where they basically get a certain script and they've learned what to say to tell those first interviews how to prove they have a credible fear. They get a court hearing date. It may be, you know, six months, a year, two years down the road. Then once they get that date and they're released into the public, then they just disappear. Uh huh. I mean, is that true? Have we chronicled that that's going on? Or is that just sort of the free fever dream of the Breitbart message boards? A lot of them are disappearing because they don't trust the Trump administration. They don't trust the government. They don't even trust the social workers at the Office of Refugee Resettlement because policies have changed so much that now sometimes Border Patrol is even uh, using the kids, unfortunately, using the kids to identify where the, fa- the parents are. And in some cases, there have been reports of them being prosecuted themselves, uh, which is something we've reported on last year. Is it true that the people whose charge it is to take care of the kids are also working with law enforcement to nab family members? Or is that just a perception, a conflation on the part of the uh, of the children? I would say in the past, it was the perception. But what has happened in the past year is that some of these systems where there's identification information has been used for enforcement. And now, just uh, last week, we reported that the Office of Refugee Resettlement, the Health and Human Services, implemented a new policy where the Office of Refugee Resettlement is specifically going to turn over fingerprints of the parents who come forward to take custody of their children. They're going to turn that over to immigration officials um, who will run immigration checks, who will run criminal record searches. They will run, look for warrants and wants and warrants. So that measure is more of an enforcement, and that will certainly cause more fear among immigrant communities because it already is. Last question. What is the Trump administration's plan? Okay, maybe they issue the shock and awe and they they convince uh, migrants that it will be an unpleasant experience, but... Do they anticipate these 10 cities that you've reported on to be permanent, semi-permanent structures? What is their plan in a year or in a few years? The way they explained them to me is that they need these as temporary structures to address the up and down of migration flows. So on the other hand, unless public 
outcry is large enough to change that, this certainly seems the way that the Trump administration is going to go. And frankly, this is a political issue, and it is a big political issue for the Trump administration, for President Donald Trump. This is something that he is running on uh, and he is using to help uh, Republicans in the midterm elections. He has got a big stick on this issue, and he is waving it hard. Franco Ordonez is White House correspondent for the McClatchy newspapers. And let me just say, I really enjoy the McClatchy newspapers. They are the point of the spear for regional newspapers, doing a great job, as are you, Franco. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And now the spiel. Here's how it works. A machinist in Muncie, a former union member, now a Walmart greeter in Eau Claire, a Loudonville, Ohio security guard. She's getting paid $13 an hour to sit outside the boarded-up, fenced-in auto part plant where she used to make $29 an hour inside. Two men, one woman, all white, three years of college and one associate's degree among them. America used to mean one thing to them, now it means another. So they're home one night, they're watching some TV. Let's say the Tonys. Perhaps they all also have a not easily predicted love for musical theater, or were at least intrigued by the interplay between hosts Sarah Bareilles and Josh Groban. And then Robert De Niro comes on stage. He was hilarious in Meet the Fockers and some of his other movies. I know Robert De Niro, they say. I bet he has something valuable to tell us. And here is what they hear De Niro say. I'm going to say one thing. Fuck Trump. Only they didn't hear him say that. That was maybe from the unbleeped Australian broadcast. What they heard was the sound dropout of the U.S. broadcast. But they know, they just know, in their hearts, quickly, almost imperceptibly, they change in a way that is natural and predictable. All three of them weren't before, but are now Trump voters. That's how it happens, people. De Niro used the F word, or Samantha B uses the C word in relation to a Trump, not even the Trump. And a persuadable voter in the Midwest turns. They can't help it. They were perhaps among the 881,000 viewers who had tuned into Samantha B that day when she had some reckless fun in calling Ivanka a feckless runt. Only the word she used wasn't runt. I can't say it here. Yeah, I can. She said feckless cunt. And I just turned a non-college educated white person in the upper Midwest into a Trump voter by saying that. This person likes the gist. Maybe this person likes the Tonys and Sam B. But like they say in Catholic Mass, say the word and you shall be turned into a Trump voter. Much like saying the word Beetlejuice three times necessarily by the laws of physics conjures Beetlejuice. And I will stop my references to the Michael Keaton title character right now lest that guy show up. It's just like how during the Obama administration, not saying the phrase Islamic terrorism gave rise to so many instances of Islamic terrorism. Luckily, unlike uh, that other guy we were talking about, you can say Islamic terrorism three times and it won't happen. Oh, wait, it just did in Afghanistan. Whenever an entertainer speaks ill of Trump, that is the reason people vote for Trump. 
Today in the Times, Frank Brudy wrote an article headlined, How to Lose the Midterms and Reelect Trump. And the how-to wasn't things like, don't offer a better economic message. And it wasn't things like, tactically, screw up fundraising. No, here's how it began. Dear Robert De Niro, Samantha B, and other Trump haters, I get that you're angry. I'm angry too. But anger isn't a strategy. Sometimes it's a trap. When you find yourself spewing four-letter words, you've fallen into it. You've chosen cheap theatrics over the long game. Catharsis over cunting. Wait, oh, sorry. Catharsis over cunning. First of all, De Niro and Samantha B, those are who needs to play the long game? No, one needs to present a Tony and the other needs to create satire. That's what they need to do. Fuck Trump or feckless cunt or not really sharp barbs at all. I've done a thousand, I don't know, what do you think, 12, 13 shows? And I've never said, fuck Trump. Except that time we're spitballing good rhymes to end my limericks about dump trucks and sump pumps. But who cares what Samantha B or Robert De Niro say? I'll tell you who cares. The biggest Trump partisans. See, this is why Trump won, they say. See, you were mean to him. And by you, I mean a Canadian comic on basic cable. Here's how it works. Every person on every television show, or in the case of Kathy Griffin, any magazine spread, or in the actual case of Kathy Griffin, any magazine spread that doesn't actually get to wind up in the magazine before TMZ reports on it, all of these people represent every Democratic politician running for a House seat. Because I hate to be overly pedantic with the civics lesson. I don't know if you know this, but fine, I'll go through it. Every state has two senators. Every 700,000 or so Americans have one representative in the House of Representatives. And that person, that representative, is the person who's actually on the ballot. But it's also every comedian, actor, singer in the non-country Western genre, and MSNBC host in the entire country. On the other side, the Republican who's running is the actual person of the Republican who's running, but it's also everything ever said by Laura Ingram, former Boston Bruin goalie Tim Thomas, and Kenny Chesney. Who thinks like that? Who actually thinks like that? I guess pundits think we all think like that. In truth, the people mad at De Niro and B were already impassioned partisans. And if you want to make the argument about the words they said, if you want to say those aren't the best words, those words go too far, those words are useless words except as pieces of emotion, that's fine. I pretty much agree with that. But then if you go and try to convince us, yes, those words go too far, but you know what, they, you know what else they do? They offer a post hoc explanation and a future permission structure for people to vote against their interests. I believe that to be an entirely evidence-free hypothesis. Now, sometimes people compare such utterances, the fuck Trump type utterances, to when Hillary Clinton talked about deplorables. A few things about that. When Hillary Clinton did it, that was the actual candidate saying that. If one's hackles were raised by the phrase that Samantha B used, then don't like Samantha B. If they were raised by Hillary, then don't like Hillary. And many people didn't like Hillary. But it doesn't make sense for if you didn't like Hillary talking about deplorables to say, now I don't like Samantha B." just like it doesn't make much sense if you don't like what Robert De Niro said to go out and punish your Democratic candidate in the midterms. The advice that everyone in America needs to elevate their arguments or else the Democrats will lose the midterms is pretty dumb. 
because the actual argument being made by the actual people running for the midterms do not resemble what Robert De Niro said. And Samantha B. Do you know Samantha B's never actually voted in a midterm election? You're going to let her affect your vote in the first midterm election she ever voted in? 2016 was the first election that she could vote in since she got her citizenship. Democrats have enough to worry about without left-leaning pundits asking us to monitor everyone speaking into a microphone and advising that we quickly cut the wires and burn the tape before anyone gets worked up. Do I think intemperance is a good strategy to win an election? I do not. But guess what? No one is using intemperance as their strategy. They're making points about the Constitution and economics and the direction the country is going. The worry expressed by people like Frank Bruni seem more to speak to the anxiety of Democrats than the actual words, strategy, or tactics of Democrats actually running for office. If I had advice for citizens, it would be something like this. Vote your passion. Vote your rage. Vote your intellect. Vote your heart. Vote your interests. Do I really have to advise you? Try not to cast a vote based on a word you didn't like six months ago from a person who has no power to affect your life. I don't have to advise that because I really don't think anybody does that. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who believes in diversity, meaning he got a D on a paper back in university. That counts, right? Mary Wilson, just senior producer, does not think diversity is a dirty word, but feckless diversity its getting pretty close to dirty. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, says redlining is often necessary. Illegal tackles, handballs, you got a redline. The gist the Cook Political Report just reclassified New Jersey's 2nd Congressional District from likely Democrat to, you gotta be kidding me with this nudnik. Oomperu, dapperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.